<laughs> Darren, I want to thank you for taking this time to be here this morning. You got up really early to do this. <laughs> I really appreciate this. Just so the audience knows, you are the new director of the Tokyo American Club. Correct. Right. Correct. Now, well, thank you for the opportunity. Yeah. Great to be here. Great to be. Where here. were you prior to this? So, I, I come from hospitality background. Mm -hmm. So, prior to actually coming to the club, mm -hmm. I was in Okinawa for 17 months. Is that right? Yes. At a club there? No, with a the Inter Intercontinental okay. in Okinawa. Right. So that was kind of a, a transitional move for me to, to, to fill in, not necessarily fill in time, but COVID hit right. and the industry, as we know, got hit very hard. Right, right. So we were contemplating actually a move back to Australia. However, when COVID sort of started to really kick in, we weren't sure where was the best place to be. So right. stay where you know, and we stayed in Japan. Um, and then 17 months later, I'm back in, the to in Tokyo, which is the city I love. I absolutely love it. So adore. you lived here for a long time prior yes. to that? Yes. Yeah. So I arrived in Tokyo in early 2000s okay. um, in hospitality. That was your first time coming to Japan? First time coming to okay. Japan, yeah, right. with a suitcase for an interview. <laughs> but, but you already married then? No, I was single. I was single. Well, so I thought you'd married longer. Than, I'm, just, I'm just guessing all this. I don't know. That, I'm learning now. Yeah, no. So hospitality, you tend to get married early or you get married late. And yours was late? Mine was late. Okay. So I had moved from Australia up here as a single guy okay. to join a, an American fund who had bought a hotel chain. Mm -hmm. um, and my role was to essentially get Japan or get that company ready for the inbound wave that came pre-COVID. Right, right, um, right. So my role was to sort of internationalize these very Japanese business-orientated hotels, domestic business hotels, mm -hmm. into being ready for the inbound wave okay. that, that eventually came. Okay. Um, so I actually had a call from an old contact that I worked with who said, would you be interested in coming to Japan? And I said, well, fly me up and let's have a, have a chat. So I flew up, arrived on the Friday morning, spent Friday, all day Friday doing interviews. And then I was dumped in Rapongi by, <laughs> by the people that were hosting me and said, you're back on a flight on Sunday night. Enjoy your weekend in Tokyo. So that was my introduction to Tokyo. How long did you stay here, just for a weekend? For a weekend. For a weekend. And then they told you it was time to go back. Time to go back. So I was only okay. here for the weekend. Okay. Of course, I was working in, in Australia at the time. Were you in hospitality in yes, Australia? Yes, yeah, in okay. hotels, in okay. ho in, still in hotels. Right, right. So I flew up, did the interview, flew back uh, on the Sunday night, straight to work on Monday morning, um, and then thought, well, let's see. Let's see what happens. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe a bit later we'll get into the conversations about, you know, what sort of the desire of coming to Asia was all about. But right. Got back to Australia, got a call, I think, on the Wednesday night um, saying, look, we'd love to proceed and let's start talking around, around the contract. Okay. And then a month and a half later, I packed my suitcase, my single suitcase, like many expats do, right, right, right. Uh, and, and arrived in Tokyo and, and have never left. Having said that, I've spent now, this time... This was 2000? This was 2004. 2004. 2004, right. yeah. Oh. Yeah, and then when I was with that company, I was mm -hmm. sent to Kobe. So mm -hmm. I worked for this particular company for a couple of years um, here in actually here in Hamamatsucho. Okay. I was based in Hamamatsucho. Right. Then went to Kobe 
uh, for about six or seven months to caretake a hotel down there. Came back to Hamamatsucho, then left that company and went and worked for another private equity firm into another hotel group and was sent to Osaka. Uh, so all in all, total in Japan during that stint was about six and a half years. Okay. Sort of back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Then I had an opportunity to go and work in or join Intercontinental mm-hmm. and went and worked in Seoul for seven years. Okay. And then in 2018, we came back here. So you were married when you went to Seoul? Married when I went to Seoul, yes, correct. That was the first time, you, that was, so you only had a wife when you went to Seoul? Correct. Okay. Correct. All right. And, and <laughs> funnily enough, we actually got married to go to Seoul. So for them to join me... Is your wife Australian? She's Japanese. Japanese, okay. Yeah, she's Japanese. All right. And she wanted to go to Seoul? Uh, not really. <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> not really, not really. But, okay. but um, she's from here in Tokyo, and I was down in Osaka, and we, had, we did have our first and only child. Okay. Um, when? And when? Then, at that time? In uh, 2009. 2009, okay. Yeah. So he was two when we moved to Korea lived there for seven years. So he's actually lived in Korea longer than he's lived in Japan. So different, yeah. He was yeah. nine years old when he left there and came back here. Correct, correct, wow. yeah. So he's only been here for what, a year? No, so, he's, so we came back in 2018. Oh, 2018, okay. Yeah, so. Right. So, so yeah, how, old is, how old is he now? He's now, he'll be 13 next month. And you have him at the British school, at the best school, no, BST, they call it, best school in Tokyo. There you are, there you are, yes. <laughs> which is going to be across it. the street, which it. is going to be across the street soon. It will be. In it 2022. Be. He's not real happy that it's only the junior school. That's right, because he's up there, he's a short <laughs> campus, so he's a little ways away. Yeah. Does he take the bus there, does he take a train? He takes the train. Takes yeah, the train. he takes the train. Right, because I don't think they have buses for short. They oh, don't. they do, in front of? From Shibuya. From Shibuya, yeah. from the Shibuya campus they yeah. do. Wow, so where were you born? So I was born in a very, very remote part of Australia. Very, if, if you know Adelaide, if you know Adelaide, do you know Adelaide yes, or okay, Melbourne? Yes. So if you draw a line essentially from halfway in between Adelaide and Melbourne, that right. is where I was born. But so along the coast, of course. Towards the coast, the coast yeah, right. but slightly it's inland. Ascend, okay. Yeah, so, right. so my history, my, my heritage right. are free settling Irish to Australia. So you're Irish? Yes. Who isn't? I mean, I mean, I have Irish blood. Right. My great great grandmother was German Irish. Wow. Well, interestingly, my mother's side is German. Okay. So there you are. There you okay. There German you are. Irish Irish German. Is there something? Something about the two. That's interesting. Yeah. Wow. So they. So actually, I'm sixth generation Australian. So I'm quite old. old okay. You know, Australia's right. not an old country. Right. So our family were very early settlers, and they took a pastoral lease. Mm-hmm. Um, so they were they were farmers essentially, okay. um, right. and my side of the family or my father was the last sort of generation to live on that farm okay. before they moved away for us, okay. their kids. Um, you know, they moved away because of the kids. They they they, to the they city? wanted to move to a city for us to have a proper education. So they sold the farm. Sold the farm. Yes, okay. sold the farm. Went into other other businesses. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. my father's quite an entrepreneurial guy, mm-hmm. um, which is quite unusual coming from a farm because it's it's sort of very set in their mm-hmm, ways. Mm-hmm. But he got involved in a lot of different things, including property development. Um, he was he had a trucking company that was was moving oil, petrol gasoline over, all over Australia. Um, and then, then they bought 
a motel. Okay. And we lived in the motel when I was nine years old. And helped maintain it. I bet you guys were the cleanup crew. <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. How so many kids are there in the So family? there's just myself and, and one older sister. How many years different? Two years. Two years. So okay. she's two, two years course. older than me, yeah. And very different, so very, very different. She's, um, you know, she's, she likes stability. She likes being in, in the same place and, and familiarity. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'm completely the opposite. I love constant change and something new. And, and so again, you know, unfortunately, un- unfortunately, I lost my grandmother about four or five years ago mm-hmm. now. She could never understand why I would ever, ever want to live in a place like Tokyo. Really? Because we come from a very rural country town. Mm-hmm. But again, I've, I've been fortunate to travel many places in the world. And, and what I find is that there is no city in the world like Tokyo. Isn't that the truth? And for example, you know, you can walk in any main street of Tokyo, but go one block back and it's peacefully quiet. And you're in a city of... And clean. And And clean. clean. And spotlessly clean. So I love Tokyo for the fact that it has that diversity of the, if you want to be involved in, in noise and mayhem and everything else, it's right there. But if you want to have peace, tranquility, and quiet, it's right there. Right across the street. It's across the street, yeah. And and, and I've never experienced anything like that anywhere else in the world. And you've been all over? I haven't been all over, but I've been traveling. Where's some of the areas you've been? So, of course, I've been to the UK, back to Ireland, to the US. (laughs) And and I've I've traveled extensively through Asia. And I think, again, Tokyo... Uh, of course, Japan is Asia. Mm-hmm. It's Japan, but it's mm-hmm. Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's very, very unique. People don't understand until you come here how different it is to everywhere else in Asia. Mm. Uh, and again, the, the culture and, and everything else that pay, plays part of that, that I don't think half the time the Japanese even know they're doing it. They don't, they don't. But it's, been, it's been ingrained in their culture. Yeah, it's but it's beautiful. Of, it's just like, I think it's just like with all of us when we grew up, you don't notice the things that are closest to you. It's like when you left home. Yes. And then when you saw the place that you grew up in, you go back and look at it after you've been around, you go, what? Yeah. It's completely different. So your father liked to do a lot of different things. How's your father doing, by the way? He's good. He's good. Unfortunately, I haven't seen him for, you know, because of COVID and like, I'm not alone. There's many other people that are the same, but he celebrated his 80th birthday last year. Is that right? And we, we, uh, we were planning to be there, of course. And and unfortunately we couldn't be. So we're now planning to be there for his 81st, but with what's going on now, we're not sure we'll even make it for that. So, but, but thankfully, both mum and dad are in great health. That's and good to hear. They're, they're doing well, so thank you. And your sister's still living there? She's, she's still there. Do they still yeah. have the motel? No, no. They, so my parents have retired and basically okay. now just enjoying, because they worked hard. You know, and they, they, and they, never, they never separated? No. So that means he must, your father must have done some things correct. Yes. <laughs> had he not, yes. your mother would have taken the high road and you two of you. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And, and, and again, you know, growing up it was... It was, uh, you know, we had, we had the Irish side, which my father has, he is one of the most patient people, okay. patient and caring people that I think every, anyone would ever meet. Really? My mother is, uh, is German, which is a little bit more abrupt and a bit more fiery. <laughs> so the two of them together seem to make a great mix. Oh, and, and, and like every family, we had our arguments and our right, yelling right, right. and screaming, and, and right. w- which would happen. But, but they've, 
and and they're a wonderful place now. They're, they're very much still in love with each other mm. and they love their company. They spend all their time together. You know, they've worked Absolutely. together, they've had businesses together, they have raised us as kids together while running businesses and, and we moved a lot. You know, Did we, you risk, yeah. I went to, I left school when I was 15. But to I do went what? To do what? To, to move into hospitality. At 15? Yes. Well, how did we, you'd already decided at that time. No, so what happened was we, because of, because of the, the businesses that my parents had, we would move quite regularly. So, so with hotels, what they would do was they would buy a distressed asset. So right. something that okay. somebody had not made work, they went in, made an offer, bought it, went in, we'd lived there for six months, eight months, and then they would sell it and we'd move on to the next place. Okay. So I, moved, I left school at 15 to go into hospitality to try and find a little bit of stability because I, want, I, did, I didn't want to keep changing schools. And I was never a great kid at school. Okay. Uh, you know, education and I was not kind of meeting head to head. And I was more involved in sports. So I loved sport, wanted to be a professional Two. sports person. Such as what, soccer? No, in motorsports. So I started racing motorbikes when I was six years old. You're a bike rider? Yes. So am I. Yeah. I started riding, I guess, when I was around 10. Right, right. Wow. So because, because being in and around a farm, there was no need to have a bicycle. Right, right. So right. you got straight onto a motorbike. Okay. So riding motorbikes sort of from four years old yeah. and then started racing them at six. Dirt ride, dirt, dirt bike, yeah, motocross, motocross things. You yeah. still do that? I don't anymore, but I'm, I'm. Once it's in the blood, you can't get it. You out. can't get it out. So, one of the deals that I made with my wife was when we came back to Japan was to get another bike. So I'm currently looking, just to There's find so something. There's so many of us that are riders here. Yeah. Have you, you met Neil yet? Does he ride his bike here? He does. He rides a, a BMW scooter. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. Good guy. So you're a bike rider. You love yes. that. You love sport. That was your sport. That was my thing. I mean, you know, again, Australia, during, when I was growing up, is very different to what it is today as it is everywhere in the world. Sports in our community was how we met and, and socialised with sure. everybody. Yeah. So Australian rules football during the winter, cricket right. during the summer. Okay. And, you know, it, there was always sport. Tennis, soccer was, was not big in Australia then. It was Australian rules football right. where I grew up in the southern states. The, the further north you go on the east coast is where rugby sort of becomes mm -hmm. more popular. Um, but you know, it was, it was always something, tennis, AFL, or Australian rules football, right. Right. whatever. And that was, that was what I felt comfortable in. My father was a semi-professional track cyclist okay. uh, during all these other things that he was doing. So he had that competitive spirit in him. And, and that sort of flowed out into me, and he never pushed me into bikes. Right, right. Um, but he didn't stop you either. Absolutely not, absolutely not. And, and you know, during that, those fundamental years of, of sort of six to becoming an early teenager, having a father that had been through that sporting, you know, background mm -hmm. and, and understanding to learn about focus and mm -hmm. not worrying about who's behind you and all these different things. Right, 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 right really, really set me up for what I've carried through in my professional life. Okay. Not only in my sporting prowess, but, mm. but I've taken a lot of those things that I learned as a kid 
and apply them to what I do in my day-to-day -day job. Okay, like, give me an example. So focus, I mentioned the right. word focus. Right. You know, more and more so now today, there is so much noise, so much distraction, and there is always a million things to do. That never changes. Mm. But if you don't focus on what's important, it never goes away. It, it just lies dormant for a little while, you know, and, and you can put all those things in a list and, and park them for a while. And that's what I do. I park many things. And then when I tick a few things off, so I try and focus on you know, three to four things at one time. And there might be a list of 150 things that need to be done. But I find that gives not only me focus, but also the team that I'm leading mm -hmm, mm -hmm. a clearer focus about what needs to be done now and what's appropriate for now for the next step because we all need to get ready for what's coming next. But if you focus just on the continual noise and little little bumps in the road, so to speak, then you'll just keep running down a, a bumpy old road. That's right. That's so, right. you know, in sport, especially anything to do with motorsport, if you, if you look, for example, when you're watching people that are riding motorbikes, well, you ride for yourself, right? You don't look at the road in front you cannot, of you. You cannot. Because very soon you're gonna fall off or you're gonna hit something. You're always looking for where you want to go. And I think business is no different. Mm -hmm. You have to have a vision, you have to have a plan. You might change your vision and plan but and take a different one, path, right? but you've got to have one. Otherwise, you're just a passenger and you're taken along on a ride on anything that somebody wants to make is their agenda. So, oh. so at 15, what did, so you said you went into hospitality at 15. Yes. What was your first job? So I'm, I'm a chef by trade. So I actually... Wait, 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 wait. Now, we, at 15, you go to hospitality, so prior to that, your mother or your father were teaching you how to cook, or your grandmother. No, so you, you hit the nail on the head before. You said that while we were living in motels and hotels, right. I would be working in kitchens on ah, the weekends. okay. Not only to earn a little bit of pocket money, but, but also just to help out. So I then started to take well, a... So, what, so your parents said, okay, well now we're in this motel, I'm gonna have to move out after a while, you gotta, you're gonna have to help. So you got to pick what you wanted to do? Yeah. What did your sister decide she wanted to do? Uh, she, she was more on the reception side. Okay, yeah. she'd be welcoming the customers Correct. and everything. Okay. Correct, yeah. And you said, I wanna go in the kitchen. I wanna go in the kitchen because, the, I, in fact, what probably kind of drew, drew me to the kitchen was in one of our hotels, one of our executive chefs, had a motorbike. <laughs> <laughs> All of these things where the stars sort right. of aligned. And I thought, right. so how you can cook and have a motorcycle? Right, yeah. and a career. And a career? God forbid, this sounds right. fantastic. <laughs> right. So I went into the kitchen sort of, but then, then started to actually, you know, become interested in, in food. And, and again, come, growing up on a, on a farm or in that sort of environment, mm -hmm. it was always there. So for example, my grandfather, my grandfather was a cheesemonger. So he made cheese and sold cheese. So as a kid, instead of growing up with potato chips, I was given a slice of cheese. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. And, and often it was a different slice of right, cheese. So, exactly. you know, and, and there was good cheeses and there was right, bad so cheeses. Bad cheeses, right. So I, I, I kind of had that growing up, okay. that, that food and beverage, food and more so, was, yeah. was, was around the family. So when I had that opportunity to sort of investigate a little deeper when we were living in the hotels, I then started to actually grow even more appreciation for food and beverage. Yeah. And then I was given an opportunity to leave school and get an apprenticeship. 
Okay. So basically my parents had said, look, if you're not going to finish high school, you, you need to get an apprenticeship or something as a, you know, which was very typical in those days mm -hmm. to have something as a, as a trade. Right, right, right. And I thought, well, why not? Of course, I'll go and cook. So I left school and took on an apprenticeship as a chef. At 15? At 15, okay. yeah. So al almost 16. Right, okay. Yeah. So end of year 11 right, for us right, in right, Australia. Right. Um, right. I was sort of a little bit younger than, than most kids because my birthday is at the end of the year. Yes. Right? So, um, so yeah, I, I grew this, this, this interest and desire in food and the guy had a motorbike and he was a cool guy and I thought, this is it. This is, this is what I will do until I become a professional racer. Okay. That's how you thought you had it all planned <laughs> that, that's out. That's what I thought okay. was, that, that was the plan. Yeah. So how long did you do that? So from 16 on? You so I, I cooked for about, uh, so there's a, it's a four-year apprenticeship in right. Australia. So, right. so I did that. I had a small break in between and went and worked for a car company. Uh, again. Just to make money. Just to make, yeah, it was, it was more right. of a break. Okay. It was a break from, you know, I, I wanted to know whether in fact it actually was hospitality and the, the car company was an opportunity for me to get into car racing and, and all these sorts of things. So, which you did? Which I did. Okay. Which I did because I had to go, I had to leave bikes. Okay. Uh, Why is that? Uh, so what actually happened was I was riding. <laughs> okay, here we go. Here we go. Yeah, so it's, and, and this all happens in quite a short period of time. Right, okay. Um, so I was 15 years old. I'd been riding semi-professionally for Honda. Okay. in Australia and I was racing essentially every weekend somewhere in four different categories okay so it was consuming a lot of my time a lot of my energy a lot of everything and it was during the early days of the 80s when supercross became a thing where they race motocross inside stadiums okay so this this all sort of happened around the early 80s and the pioneers of that of course was the US Mm -hmm. So the U.S. would come out, they'd bring a team out from, from the U.S. to race against the best of us in, in Australia. And at 15 years old, I'd been racing for nine years. Okay. So, you know, most of my life. Um, right. And I loved it and I enjoyed it. And, but, it, but it was coming to a point where I needed to really decide, okay, is this the path I'm going to take or not? And, and the Supercross thing sort of put me to a pinnacle where, in fact, I got offered an opportunity to go and race professionally in the US. But at 15, having ridden for nine years, I thought, well, I don't need to go to America to prove anything. You and thought that? I thought that at the time. And of course, I have one regret in my life, and that is it, that I, that I turned that down. So I walked away from bikes. Nothing had happened to you? Nothing had happened to me. I was just tired. I was, I'd, I'd, I'd thought that I'd got to probably as high as I, potentially needed or wanted to go on bikes. What age was this? So I was 15. So I, I was picked up by Honda at 13, 12, 13. And when you say picked up, they're actually paying you to ride their Signed bikes. a contract with them to ride, yeah. So, you know, and, 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 and that's not unusual in, right. in motorsport. Yeah, it is if you're, not, if you're not a good rider. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> you're going to be a really good rider. Yeah. What are you talking yeah. about? So, but, but again, because I was not a great student at school I, I, it just didn't it didn't invigorate me it didn't excite me and, and I knew I had to do it and, and of course we all have to do it but it wasn't I knew very early that I was never going to be a scholar at anything I knew that sport or something else 
which is kind of how I then got into hospitality, was what it was going to be. But I knew it wasn't going to be academic. So I wasn't going to be an engineer. I wasn't going to be, in fact, I wanted to be a pilot, but I knew that I wouldn't study hard enough to do that. Pass the test. Correct. So, So I thought then sports or something else. So at 15, I decided something else. Let's try this something else. So that's when I took on this role as, as a chef. Let me ask you something, just out of curiosity. During your time of inquiry, when you were trying to decide what you wanted to do, did you ever sit down with your father and yep. you kind of gently? Of course, he, he has been a fantastic sounding board for me for my whole life and still does to this day. That's beautiful. Yeah, which is great. And, and you know, as we all know, when we lose them, that, that's, that, right. that's gonna be a big loss. Um, so and this COVID thing is really hard because I want to go and see them. I just want to be with them, and because you just don't know, right? Mm-hmm. So it's been tough. But but I still talk. The beauty of technology is we can speak to them whenever we want, as often as we like, and see them, right? and see them. <clears throat> so that so that's great. But mm-hmm. so yeah, during that, you know, and, and my father again, he's mentioning about this patience and logical thinking, and, and you know, you're the only one that can make these decisions. And, and it, was, it was tough, you know, they were tough decisions, but he would not make those decisions for me. And he would say, as long as you understand what you're turning down, that's your decision, right? Wow. And to, to today, you know, that I can still see myself sitting there having that conversation with him. And I have one regret in my life, and that is it, that I didn't do it. But it was your choice. But it was my choice. So you the only person in, right. to blame is me. That's right. Right? And, I, and I've learned, I've come to terms with that. But <laughs> I think, <laughs> I think. But I, but I still, you know, you, in, like in everything in life, you, you wonder if you had have taken that fork in the road, right. what could have it been? Um, and some of the people that I was riding with at the time that did take that went on and did wonderful things and made great money and, <laughs> and are still involved in the sport and all these sorts of things. But, but, you know, we make decisions and you make a decision right or wrong and you move on. And, and I think that's what you have to do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Otherwise, you know, you get stuck in the past and right. continue to think about the past. Right. Then, again, looking that's in true. the rear, rear vision mirror all the time is, is not healthy. Right. Can any of those guys that you look at in their wonderful lives stuff cook? They cannot. There you go. There, there you, you are. Go. <laughs> <laughs> they have the palate you do. <laughs> Very true. Very true. Okay. So then you decided to go into hospitality. Yes. And you'd had your cooking skills built up. What'd you do from there? So, so. cooking, yeah. So moved in, into the cooking right. and then uh, did my apprenticeship and then was working. So again, I've, through my working career, I've always sort of been in a place of crisis. Okay. Now, meaning that I'll be somewhere and an opportunity presents itself. Okay. So I was, when I was cooking during my apprenticeship, so I was three years into my apprenticeship and the chef that, that was working in the hotel that we were working in decided to walk out. So somebody had to stand up and take control and I did that. So I was essentially 18 and a half, 19 years old and I was running a brigade of about 30, 30 chefs. And all of them older than you probably. All of them were yeah, basically right. older than me. But, but somebody had to do it. And again, you know, something else that I'd learned from, you know, from my father was that somebody has to take control. 
somebody's got to stand up and do it. And, and it wasn't a case of I was going to stand up and do it forever, which I thought, you know, it's just, it's today, tomorrow and next week and somebody will eventually come. They never came. How long did it last? Uh, about a year. <laughs> <laughs> about a year. But again, you know, it, it was a great opportunity for me to learn about leading people. Did you have a lot of, con did, did, how did the people respond to you leading? They all agreed, they said, Of course okay. not, of course not. Who is this young guy? Yeah, you know, and I've been he, here longer than him. And exactly, exactly. So, you know, and we lost some because they thought, well, the, the company wasn't making the right decision. Mm -hmm. Not that they'd made an announcement that I was in charge. It was just expected that someone was going to do the job. You know, and, and again, in kitchens, it's a very hierarchical sort of environment. Mm -hmm. and people tend to like to look at their titles and say, well, that's your job. Or, you know, you are the one that's expected to stand up and take, take control. The particular person that would have been the logical person to do that had no intention of doing that. Oh. So, and, and I kind of known that through conversations and it wasn't a case of me throwing my hand up and saying, let me do it, let me do it. I just thought somebody had to take control. Otherwise, potentially, we could have lost, we all could have lost our mm -hmm. jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, we had a restaurant that was doing well. We had regular clientele that had their own particular dishes that they wanted. So somebody has to pick up the basket and run with it. And, and you did. And I did. And, and I've done that all of my working career. And I'm not, not a person that wants to step on people's toes, not right. at all. Right. Often the opportunity has presented itself to me, mm -hmm. good and bad, good and bad. Mm. So, but again, it's, you know, it's all this upbringing and the things, these conversations that you have with, I was also very, very close to my grandfather. You know, On and your mother's side or father? Father's side. Okay. Yeah, my, unfortunately, my mother's side, they were older. Uh, and in fact, I spoke German to them. They couldn't speak English. How did you learn, when did you learn German? Just speaking with my grandparents. They taught you? Yeah. So did you understand your mother? I did, <laughs> probably. <laughs> so she was born in Australia, but my, my grandparents, who immigrated after the war, they didn't speak, they spoke hardly any English at all. And again, I don't have a lot of memories of them because they mm -hmm. passed when I was quite young. Mm -hmm. um, but what I did do as a kid was I was speaking German to them because that was the only way for me to communicate with them. Wow. Yeah. And did you retain any of it? It, bit, it is still a little bit, bit there, okay. yeah, a little bit there, and and of course because there's a you know German you can, blood, right, right, right. it's it's there's still That's an interest right. in it. That's right, so, of course. Yeah, that is interesting. Yeah. Okay, so you took over this whole, you took over this restaurant for a year, had your battles with these guys. Yes, you won obviously because yes. you stayed for a year. What happened when you left after that year anyway? So so continue? in fact, I didn't end up I didn't end up staying in the kitchen for the full year. The the owner of the of the hotel decided that. I had, you know, I'd showed ability to actually come out and do a little bit more of the management side. So not only had I stepped up and taken the role as <laughs> running the kitchen, but he then decided to move me out onto the floor, which is enemy number one to kitchens, is right. the floor staff. <laughs> so I was, again, picked up and put... the pan into the fire. Correct, correct. Sheesh. Yeah. But he and thought... And all of 18 going on 19. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So how did you handle that? I mean, that had to be very interesting. I'm sure you had a lot of discussions with your father. Yep. You had to say, Dad, look. <laughs> I did, I did. But again, if I go back to that sporting, you know, that, that oh, what yeah, I learned. Yes, bikers, that's true. During sport was, you know, that, that again, that's right. you focus that's and, right. and you look for where you want you to go. Catch me if you can. Exactly. And just run right. and keep running. 
and <laughs> right, keep running. Right, right. right? So again, I, you know, I often talk, when I talk to my any management team that I, I always talk about my learning experiences from my sport. Because, you know, and there's a lot of analogies across, but, but I think I actually can talk from both sides because I've experienced both sides and they are very similar. Not always, but there's things that you learn mm -hmm. if you get to a certain level in any sport that's right. that, again, it becomes more of a mental challenge than it is about the ability. That's right, that's right. Yeah, so the mental part, you know, again, if you think about any professional sports person, being good is one thing, being exceptional is something else. And nine <laughs> times out of 10, that comes back to the mental part. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that so, the truth? You know, so what I learned through that, that upbringing and, and having wonderful, great, you know, people to be able to have these conversations with was that I, I referenced back to that whenever I faced these sort of challenges and just thought, I can sit here and go, well, this is all going to be too hard. And yes, somebody wants to do the job or somebody doesn't want to do the job, but can I? So it became a, a challenge for me to be able to prove to myself, to nobody else, that I could do it. Mm. And I think in sport, again, it comes back to, you know, sport often is a team sport, but when you're sitting on a motorbike, there's you. That's you, period. Yeah? Or in a race car, it's you. That's right. right. Until you pull into that's the pits right. or whatever it <laughs> may be. Right, that's right. There's other people, but, but <laughs> mentally, the, 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 the focus that you have to have is intense. That's right. You know, and, and again, people look at any motorsport and think, well, how hard can it can be? Go and do two laps <laughs> that's, with that's 30 other cars around you. That's, that's how hard it can that's be. Right. <laughs> that's right. If you can make it through that. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, so that, that, mental, that mental growth that I went through, through that sport thing, is, is what I think helps me remain focused, calm, and make you know, decisions when decisions need to be made. Mm-hmm because they have to be made. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and again, collectively, again, it's a team sport. I try to get people to be involved to, to let them understand that, you know, I think everybody has this ability. The challenge is to find what it is that gets people to the point of understanding that they know they can do it. And that's fear, right? That's understanding your own fear. And again, it wasn't as though I knew I could succeed every time. I was frightened. But the fear or the actual accomplishment of succeeding in something was far stronger than the fear of failure. And if you fail, I just thought, at least I gave it my best shot. And what did I learn from it? What did I learn from it? And what will I do differently if it happened again? Motorbikes, you know, again. That was, was going through my head when you were doing it. I was seeing you go up over a hill, trying to jump to the next one, miss it, hit the ground. That's the, I'm going to tell you the scenario. You hit the ground. You said, wow, I didn't make it the time. So you go back, more throttle. So you go back the next time. You don't give it up. You just right. go back the next time right. when you go around. <laughs> you give a little bit more. That one worked. All right. Yeah. And then, and then it sticks, right? right? And then confidence <laughs> grows with that success. Uh, and then success sometimes That's becomes... Right a little too eager and you try to drum three at a time or whatever and uh, that doesn't See, okay, work. That one didn't and then work you at get all. That one really didn't work. <laughs> right. yeah. But as long as you learn, right? And That's again, right. I think it's the same with anything in life is that, um, you know, th th there's different people in, in different phases or different, different parts of their that, life right. and, and that's perfectly okay. But, but I always like to try and just, just push people to, th to 
to think a little bit more about what more they could do for themselves, mm -hmm. which in turn has a reward to somebody else or to a business or something. And, and again, in, in sport, you know, when you're in professional sport, if you think about tennis, for example, no one understands that they're out there hitting a ball for six hours a day. They only see them, you know, in that arena. That's right. It, it's what happens behind. And again, that's Isn't a lot it? of the mental stimulation and it's hard. It's hard. So right. when people come to work, for example, you know, people work for different reasons. We all work for money. We all know that generally. But, but there should be some motivation or stimulus to improve. Mm -hmm. Pe little bit by little bit by little bit. And what, what's often funny is that people improve and don't even realize they have. So if you just keep you know, quietly pushing or pulling triggers to try and get them to improve or change a little bit, they in themselves benefit from it. And, and, and I get a lot of satisfaction from that. I love mm -hmm. to see people grow. So what do you see with your career now that you're in hospitality? And I know you're going to be here for a while. Yep. Plan on being here for a while, for a long, long while. What do you see? I mean, what are your projections for your life? For, for personal life? Yeah. Or personal, it's, it's, all, it's all connected. I don't see it, it being is, separate. It is. It is. <laughs> I think, you know, if, if we talk about professionally here at the club to begin with, um, you know, COVID as a thing has affected people in so many different ways. And I think what has happened in a lot of cases. Everybody sort of thinks that everybody's been affected in the same way. You know, it, it affects everybody the same. Well, in, in essence, it does. But how people react to it is completely different. And there's some people that are really, really struggling with it. And there's others that are just brushing it off as though it, it doesn't even exist. Mm -hmm. Now, that in itself, in an organization like a club with 300, 400 odd staff, gives you a very, very mixed pot of feelings, emotions, motivation, all of these sorts of things. And I think COVID sort of became such an engrossing thing that, that we lost our way. And what I want to do over the next year or two is get the club back to being a social community, you know, where people can come and see their friends and Talk about good things again, not talk about all the bad things. You're going to make me cry. <laughs> because that's, oh yes, because that's you know people are people. <clears throat> there's technology. There's all of these different things. But you know, Lance, you're on mute. You're on mute. I mean, we're sick of it. We're all sick of it. So I want to see you know, great example. The first day I started here, first of October. Lifting of the state of emergency. We could serve alcohol in the club for the first time in almost a year, let's say almost a year. The looks, the smiles, the, the you know, just people be able, being able to talk to one another again. That's what I want to see in the club because that's what human humanity is about, is about sharing experiences, dining, you know, all of these things, which is the great thing about a club. And we've got a fantastic facility here where you can do it in so many different ways. So that's what I want to work on with the team because the team are the ones that have to make that happen. I can give them a vision or help them create a vision together, but they're the ones that are where the rubber hits the road. Mm -hmm. and, and if they don't believe in it, then it won't work. 
So my job is to ensure that the employees see there is a future. It's a fun future. It's, you know, it's rewarding for them. Um, and that's what I think is leadership. Mm-hmm. You know, you, mm-hmm. you take people on a journey. And, and that journey can often have bumps and veers in the road, but, but just make a decision and move on. Keep moving, keep running. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you, you know, you're always going to be held back, always being pulled back for different mm-hmm. reasons. Mm-hmm. So you know, if we were sitting here in 12 months' time having the same conversation, I would love for you to be able to say, you know what, that that we spoke about 12 months ago is now in place. That's right. And that's what we feel. You know, again, I'm a hospitality person, so I'm out walking the floor, and I, and I love to talk to people, and hear hear people's I've stories. That. I've noticed that. Yeah. I love people's stories. And that's what it's about. Yeah. One thing I think, Darren, you have in place right now, which is really good, a board and a community of people that I think are feeling very similar to you, and that's yes. what it takes. Yes. Because no one general manager is by himself. It's not an island. No. He needs, especially in a club like this, when you have committees and you have all these different setups, such a diverse um, a group of people yes. that have, like you mentioned, different desires, different mm. being affected differently by this mm. COVID. Because I thought at one time everybody was pretty much over it, got an elevator, and the guy said, I'm so happy the fact that everything's closed down and I feel so safe when I come here because everything's sanitized. What? Because <laughs> I'm thinking, I'm ready to take off my mask. And that made me think, that's right, there are people like that. Yeah. They're coming here because of that. Other people are staying away because of that. That's right. That's right. You're never going to win either way. And no. I just talked to the GM of um, the Weston. You're always going to be 50-50 split. Yep. But you knowing from your competitive background, mm. doesn't matter. No. <laughs> somebody's going to be in first place, somebody's going to be in the back. That's right. You're not going to win every time, but you try to win the most of the times, that's it. Yeah. Absolutely. That's interesting. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I've been here now two and a bit months, and, and I've experienced the same thing in that I've had people that are, you know, almost demanding for me to let them walk around the club without a mask. It's gone. It's finished. Well, it's not. But, and then there's others that are going, please don't open more things up. You know, Isn't please, please, please bring back the plastic dividers, you know. <laughs> back, so, you're right. <laughs> So there's a, there's a very wide, you know, and we have a very right. wide and diverse membership, right. as you know. That's right. And for me, again, that's a wonderful learning experience because everybody mm-hmm. sees things differently. And, and our club is all about mutual respect and all these things which, again, that's how I was brought up. And, and I don't, it's no different to me. This is, this is how I was brought up. So this is what I want to instill back into the club. And I want to see people come back to the club, feel safe, be able to reacquaint with their old friends, mm-hmm. meet new friends, you know, and, and just get back to that community spirit of what being humans is about and being with other humans. Wow. So that, that's what I really want to drive. And, mm. and there's a cultural, you know, organizational cultural part of that as well, which, which will take some work. Um, but again, that's the challenge for me. That, mm-hmm. That's what I see is the challenge. Mm-hmm. And there will be some distractors. There will be people that think it's a wonderful thing. And there'll be a a very large portion in the middle. Right. That's the only thing that I feel, I've always felt in this club, you're always going to have those distractors, the outliers or whatever. And that doesn't mean they're wrong. No. But you have to work towards the majority. Yes. 
And if you get an agreement by the majority, the outliers start to come in. They might still bicker a little bit, but yeah. they'll still be there. Yes. Because they realize they've joined a social club. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so they want to be a part of it. Or you, know, you don't have to be. Or no don't. One's, yeah. No one's forcing you to be here. Exactly. So you always focus on the majority. Yeah. And the only way to find out about that, I found, what I would used to do is have a lot of town halls. Yes. Because the people here are articulate enough to express their feelings in a very social and manable way. Yes. Sometimes too much so. Yeah. Yeah. But it works. Yeah. But without Give that, the the and surveys, difficult because that can be skewed. Yes. In any way, the person who's putting out the survey wants it to be. Yes. You just asked a few questions. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, we've seen that. You know what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's an interesting segue into surveys. I mean, mm -hmm. we've, as you know, we've just done it. I right? saw that. Or we're I, saw in, we're I, in I went through the first couple and I said, wait a second, you missed out some parts. It can always be skewed to give you the, quest the answers you want. Yeah. Yeah. So when, when we first started talking about it, when I first came on board, there was a a thought behind delaying the survey because sometimes it's better to not know. Right? <laughs> I'm the opposite. I thought just get it out and find out. And find out. So we, we did a lot of we had a lot of discussion about what do we do with the survey? What are the right questions that are in the survey? Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you noticed, but the survey we sent this year is the exact same survey we sent in 2019. Okay. Two reasons. One is that there's a familiarity to it in that people will go, oh, I remember answering, hopefully, I remember answering this question two years ago. And secondly is that, you know, I think it's better, it's better to get the information at its, if it is, at its lowest point mm -hmm. and start from there. Mm -hmm. Don't, as you say, don't try and fabricate the survey right, to tell right. you something that's actually not the reality. You know, that whole perception thing. Right, right, right. I, I'm a strong believer. Perception is reality, and That's again, it does become reality. Yeah. Yes. So the reality is what we should focus on, and they're the things that we want to fix. So the survey, actually, the survey, we think we're going to get more responses this year than we've ever had. Oh, of course, you will. Which is great. Which is great. <laughs> right. And there's much more verbatim as well, which which is also what we need to mm -hmm, drill mm -hmm, down. Mm -hmm. I always look for uh, for similar things or repetitive things. Mm -hmm. And again, pick three or four things and start with those. Because often, they're all linked anyway. That's right, they're right. And, and reason for doing the survey is I actually want the survey to confirm what I think I have found out in the last... Just from talking with people. Correct. There you go. Correct, yeah. That's very smart. Yeah. How would you like to end this? I'm going to let you wrap this up. How would you like to end this to our viewers? Well, that's a tough one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, I, I, honestly, it's very comfortable. I could sit here and talk for another hour. I know, I hour. think we could. We most definitely can. Yeah. And we will, not 12 months from now, sooner than that. Great. <laughs> Within Great. this coming year, yeah. we have to do that. Yeah. I, I think, you know, I, I guess in, in ending is that um, for those that are watching, and, and I think majority of them are members of the well, club. I, or most of the people of that I've interviewed have been members so far. Yeah. But it goes out further than that. Right, right. Again, I think... In hospitality, we often say, you know, this too will pass. And I think without a doubt, it will, right? This, this whole thing will pass. What it will look like in the future, maybe we don't know, mm -hmm. but we have to keep moving forward. We have to keep moving forward. And if the club can play an integral part of that to a group of people that are members, that would make me very happy because we've done our part 
giving back to the community or providing a space where people can make a community. And not everybody is a member, but if they're hearing and watching this, then I'd like to hope they think that this could be an actual great opportunity to now come and join the club. That's right. Because there is a group of people that actually, I think, want the same thing. And we all know Tokyo changes and it changes very quickly, but sometimes it's nice to know that there is a place that is what you, you know, the home away from home, as we mm -hmm. say. Mm -hmm. That's what I would like us to focus on the next sort of 12 months. And again, hopefully that brings new people, but hopefully it brings back a lot of our members that are sort of sitting there saying, well, not sure yet, or mm -hmm. what do we do? Or mm -hmm. what about Omicron? What about the next one? You know. Mm -hmm we've got to move forward. That's what the human race does. And we've mm -hmm. just got to keep moving forward safely, but with fun, you know, right. enjoy. You should also mention that we have over 40 different nationalities because a lot of people think it being called the Tokyo American Club, which it is. Yes. Emphasis on the American. Yep. There are 40 different nationalities. We allowed any, anyone to come in. Correct, correct. That's in right. fact, let me correct you. It's 65 now. 65 it's now. 65. So it's only 40 in our staff. Is it staff? Yes, 40, 40 in the staff. Right, 40 yeah. staff. Yeah, so, so as members, there's 60, 63, different four different nationalities. Wow. So that in itself is a fantastic That's diversity. Right. People don't realize. I've had yeah. many people come to me, I, I would have joined, but it's an American club. It isn't. I'm a great it is. example. It is. I'm you a are. great example. You are. So as an I, I think you're the first Australian GM we've ever had. And Tony was the first. I don't like to use the word double we've ever had. Right. Japanese and right. another nationality yes. mix. He's the first. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Anyway, I want to thank you so much. Thank so you. So much for being a part of this. Event. Thanks, Lance. Thank you. Enjoyed it. All of you watching this podcast, as I told you before, make sure you press like, subscribe. Never forget that it's all on loan. Continue to reach for the stars. And remember that you're too blessed to be stressed.